welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series, Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and supported by Noosa Radio FM 101.3. I am your host, Richard Borden. Before proceeding further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. How time flies. It seems like only yesterday when I was seated here in the uh, sound studio at the university recording my very first solo introductory podcast in this mini-series. Actually, it's more than two years and more than 40 episodes ago. As I announced at that time, this mini-series was to be a contribution to the university's initiatives in the public service that we call engagement. We would move beyond our standard academic work of teaching and research and talk in public, to the public, about matters that we believe deserve the critical attention of us all, that actually demand increased understanding, which, if we achieved it, we hoped, would lead to better actions, better practices and behaviours within a context of the collective adoption of much greater responsibilities towards nature as well as to each other. The mission, as I stated at the time, was to actively engage with and contribute to critical public discussions about how the most pressing and complex issues of the day might be more responsibly, effectively and collectively addressed within the context of the continuing development of the states of sustainable and inclusive well-being in an ever-changing world. A world that's been described as a VUCA world, a V-U-C-A, vulnerable, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And this is far removed from the sort of historical world that we think that we or think that we used to live in, uh, which was not so vulnerable, which was more or less certain, which was or could be determined to be relatively simple, and which in terms of decisions and judgments, relatively unambiguous. But that surely is no longer the case. So within this VUCA context, I guess, there are five key questions that immediately emerge. The first is, what are the most pressing, complex issues of the day? Secondly, what constitutes improvements to the situations that they present? Thirdly, who gets to decide what better means in the contexts? What needs to be done to achieve both the processes and substance of betterment in that context? In other words, getting to better together. And, therefore, who needs to do what has to be done? These are crucial questions. And in terms of the notion of engagement, it is this idea of togetherness, of stakeholders together deciding what are the most pressing complex issues of the day, and what does constitute improvement to their situations? Because so often we will disagree. We will disagree about what the most pressing issues are. We will disagree about what we think constitutes better. We will even, we will even disagree about who needs to decide all of these things. Who has the power? Who has the influence? And if we ourselves don't have it, from whom must we take it? 
was the intended audience, or what is the intended audience, of this miniseries? Well, we thought the phrase thoughtful and committed citizens captured it pretty well. People who were prepared to reflect on all of the questions that I've just posed. And people who are committed enough to be able to then reflect on those questions, think about them, and then discuss with ourselves together or within our communities what should be done with the emphasis on should, and I'll come to that a little later. Your host? Well, that's me. My name is Richard Borden, as you know, and I am an adjunct professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast with a long and varied history of life as an academic, mostly elsewhere. I started way back when as an agricultural scientist in England, but then following an often torturous and turbulent path, I have to say, literally across five continents, and indeed, when I think about it, more than two dozen different countries, I've come to question how we come to know what we know, and why that's important to know. It's important to the way we live our lives, or better put, how we ought to live our lives as responsible citizens in what's clearly emerging to be, as we said earlier, an all-too-vulnerable planet. And therein lies the very crux of the issue. How does each one of we billion or so try to come to know what's happening around each of us? This is of profound significance to what we do in response. How do we form our opinions, make our decisions, and come to our judgments as the basis for the actions and practices that we take in the world about us, as individuals, but also as collectives, as families, as communities, as societies, and so on? It is of fundamental importance to the ultimate fate of this world, of this planet, and of course, we ourselves with it. How do we inform ourselves? How do we come to know at a time in human history when, in addition to the extraordinary amount of information available to us through so many different channels of media, we're also prey to so much confusing jargon, to specialised languages, to disinformation, misinformation, fake news and alternative facts, to nihilism, to plain lies and deceit. In these circumstances, who can we trust? Where can we find trustworthy evidence that we need to support what we need to know? How can we escape our own psychological biases and prejudices? How do we deal with conflicts and dissonance? How do we learn to readjust our profound worldview, beliefs and assumptions when we discover that they are limiting to our understandings? These are some of the basic questions that motivated us to launch this initiative in the first place, all the while recognising and deeply appreciating the realities of day-by-day -day concerns for balancing the household budgets in the face of so many inflationary pressures. Yet they remain questions that we do need to urgently address. We hope that through conversations with a wide range of scientists, politicians, business people and members of the general public, we would be addressing the pressing issues of the day in ways that would provide some increased understanding of the issues.
and therefore give some indications of what we can do as individuals and as collectives, both at the local as well as the global levels. These matters would include climate change, COVID and other pandemics, environmental pollution and the declining biodiversity of nature with the ever-increasing rates of extinction of species. On the socio-cultural front, they would include civil unrests, war, political instability, corruption, economic recessions and depressions, social inequitabilities and the lack of inclusion of the disadvantaged. We would relate these to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and we would be coming back again and again to what we see as the failings or at least the inadequacies of education at all levels from primary through to lifelong learning with respect to responses to these challenges. Each of these matters is complex in and of itself, but to make matters even more difficult, each is interconnected with the others in ways that deny the standard approach of problem solving. As Mark Twain had it, for every simple problem, there is a solution that is simple, neat and inevitably wrong. And this, incidentally, is why we choose to talk about pressing issues rather than problems. We're seeking improvements to complex and urgent circumstances, not solutions to nice little discrete problems. We conclude that improvements can only be seriously and sensibly addressed when we work together towards betterment as informed citizens. In our very first episode, we took inspiration from the American anthropologist Margaret Mead, who claimed, never doubt, that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. So it is to you, our thoughtful and committed citizens, to whom we will be continuing to reach out and with whom we will continue to engage. In preparing for this anniversary of my first solo introduction to the miniseries two years ago, I was attempted to attempt a summary or a synopsis of all of our previous episodes, but upon reflection, there's been so much variation and richness in all of those previous conversations that so much would be lost through me imposing my own interpretation of all that's past. In this solo episode, I want to make a claim for a particular set of what I call intellectual and moral foundations, basis of our knowledge, essentially, which I maintain will help all of us to better understand what's happening in the world about us and how we should act accordingly. We're all familiar with the three R's of primary education, reading, writing and arithmetic, while wondering at the glorious conundrum that they are, of course, actually R, W and A. So much for encouraging correct spelling. I want to now propose three E's as the essential foundations for education beyond primary. Like the three R's, they're certainly not all that we need to make sense of what's happening, but they are foundational to such understanding. These three different areas of domains of human knowledge, ecological, economic and ethical, represent three different perspectives or ways of knowing. Each, as it happens, is a representative of one of the three classical divisions of knowledge and knowing. The natural sciences, the social sciences and philosophy, respectively. 
yet, as we are fast discovering, each is inextricably associated with the other two when it comes to our attempts to make sense of what's happening to the world around us. I propose that without understanding the basics of ecology, economics and ethics, and heeding their principles as well as their practices, we are unlikely to make much progress towards betterment to a situation where the most pressing issue on Earth today is actually the future of the Earth itself and us with it. The tragedy is that there's nothing new in this concern. The Earth is fast becoming an unfit permit for its noblest inhabitants, we humans, and another era of equal human crime and human improvidence would reduce it to such a condition of impoverished productiveness, shattered surface of climatic excess, is to threaten the deprivation, barbarism, and perhaps even extinction of our own species. So said the American geographer George Perkin Marsh in 1864. We've clearly paid little heed to his warning for more than a century and a half. As Inga Anderson, the UN Undersecretary General and the Executive Director of the UN Environmental Programme recently stated, nature and biodiversity is dying the death of a billion cuts and humanity is paying the price for betraying its closest friend. Just a few weeks ago, representatives from governments from all around the world came together to agree on a new set of goals for guiding global action to hold and reverse the loss of biodiversity. The variety that's represented by the 8 million or so species of life forms currently on Earth. The plants, the animals, the microorganisms, with all the different genetic information that they contain. Quite remarkably, it's been calculated that around 150 different species of living organisms become extinct every day. And that translates to three per hour for every day of the year. This is hundreds, if not thousands of times, higher than the natural baseline rate. In a paper published in 2011, just a dozen years ago, the authors state the following. Can human activity really be significant enough to drive the Earth into a new geological epoch? The ultimate drivers of such a profound shift, they said, if they continue unabated throughout this century, may well threaten the viability of contemporary civilization and perhaps even the future existence of Homo sapiens. Very tragically, the senior author of that paper, Professor Will Steffen, one of Australia's and indeed one of the world's most eminent climate scientists, has recently died from pancreatic cancer. He will be profoundly missed, not only within the scientific community, but in society at large, for he was a wonderful public communicator, as well as a policy advisor to governments, with respect to so much associated with climate change. Paul Stephan was keenly aware of the critical relationships between ecology, economics and ethics as fundamental sources of knowledge and indeed different ways of knowing, and of their significance as the basis for the development and adoption of a host of new behaviours, a host of new practices that must guide us in deciding how we should live our lives to avoid the ultimate catastrophe. These three different areas or domains of human knowledge also represent different perspectives or ways of knowing, as I've said. 
As it happens, each is a representative of one of the three classical divisions of knowledge and knowing, the natural sciences, the social sciences, and philosophy, respectively. Let me just give a brief review of the significance and nature of these three domains of knowing. Ecology, as we know, is basically concerned with finding out about how nature works. It seeks to understand the immensely complex and countless relationships that the many millions of different species of living organisms have with each other, as well as their relationships with the environment in which they exist, which of course includes land, air and water. It's to explore life at all its different levels of complexity from genes through to ecosystems, to try and figure out pathways and mechanisms of evolution and development, and to grasp the significance of our own impact as the Homo sapiens species on all of these dynamics. So to approach issues from an ecological perspective is to appreciate the profound significance of complex interrelationships and interconnectivities of what we can refer to as the holism of apparently integrated ecosystems, of the importance of diversity and to accept the dynamics and inherent uncertainties of change. It is also to understand cycles of matter, like carbon and nitrogen and water, as well as flows of information and energy. It grapples with the role of human beings. The species Homo sapiens is either an observer of all of this or is actually part of all of this, which then makes definitions about the role of, whom, of Homo sapiens or the impact of Homo sapiens on nature, which should be really on the rest of nature, for indeed we are part of nature, like it or not. Economics is also concerned with material cycles and energy and information flows, but in this case, from the perspective of the supply and demand of resources that we humans regard as useful to our lives and are thus of value to us, and not necessarily to the rest of nature. To approach issues from an economic perspective, then, is to think about the choices that we make as individuals, as businesses and as governments from the point of view of the allocation of resources that are assumed to be scarce. It is to think in terms of costs and benefits, prices and returns, and markets. It's to be concerned with inflation, interest rates, trade, taxation, and so on. For the most part, economists assume that we are rational in the choices that we make, and that information related to these choices is freely available and accessible. They assume that we seek utility. In other words, we seek total satisfaction as consumers of goods and services. There is, however, a constant ideological tension between the role of free markets on the one hand and of government interventions on the other. But at base, all economics is about human values, in spite of the old joke about economists knowing the price of everything but the value of nothing. And our final third E, ethics, is also about values, but values derived not from the marketplace or the supply and demand of resources, but from moral foundations. Intrinsic concerns for what is good compared to bad or evil, what is right in contrast to wrong, what's virtuous behaviour and what is not. 
It's been claimed that every human activity has moral significance. In other words, at base, everything that we do has consequences that can be evaluated in these terms as good or bad, right or wrong, and so on. But more than just that, ethics is also concerned with rights and responsibilities irrespective of consequences. It's concerned with obligations. And then, from another perspective again, it's concerned with what constitutes virtuous behaviour beyond either consequences or concerns about rights and responsibilities. Our virtues include empathy and kindness, care, love, honesty, integrity, and so on. So the point that I make, and the point that I leave you now with, is that until we really have a grasp of these three fundamental areas of human knowledge, of ecology, of economics, and of ethics, we will not really come to grips with the scale and complexity of the issues that we face. It was a lovely statement made actually just after the end of the American Civil War. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a senior officer during the American Civil War, turned philosopher, to paraphrase, stated, we seek simplicity on the other side of complexity. In other words, what we need to do is to accept and explore all of these complex issues using the sorts of foundations that I've just been talking about before we simplify it in terms of, well, in spite of all of this complexity, what are the issues that we can actually deal with? What are the actions we can actually take with respect to understanding all of these basic fundamentals. It might seem that this is all a bit too much, all a bit too pessimistic, and yet I keep stressing. The point of this mini-series is to raise issues that encourage us to reflect on what it is that we don't know, but need to know, if we are to take action as responsible, thoughtful, and committed citizens. And with those thoughts, I will leave you until our very next episode, and I thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.